You're listening to the podcast of Sojourn Church, Carlisle. For the next three weeks, our sermon series will engage with our church's view of missionality. To be on mission with God is to follow after God's heart, to seek that which is lost, and to redeem that which has been forsaken. We'll explore this value by looking at one of these verses each week, the Great Commission, the Great Commandment, and the Great Concern. At Sojourn Carlisle, it's our desire to be on mission with God here in South Louisville and beyond by learning how to love God completely, to love Jesus conscientiously, and to love our neighbor compassionately. Well, good morning. Let's try it one more time. Well, good morning. Good morning, good morning, good morning, Sojourn Church Carlisle. It is indeed with great joy and pleasure that I greet you in this glorious morning. Not so hot, but tolerable at least, um, as we welcome, we welcome you to our church on the lawn service. Uh, for the next three weeks, we'll continue to explore our core value of missionality, and we'll look at the following themes. Last week, we looked at Matthew 28. Today, we'll look at Luke 10. And then next week, we'll conclude our series by looking at Matthew 25. This morning, we'll begin our, uh, continuing our series by looking at the great commandment, which is found in Luke chapter 10, verses 25 to 29. So if you're physically able to stand, would you stand with me now as in honor of God's word? Hear God's word read for you this morning in Luke 10, verse 25 through 29. It says, then an expert in the law stood up to test him saying, teacher, What must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, he asked him. How do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. You've answered correctly, he told him. Do this and you will live. But wanting to justify himself, he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. You know, growing up as a young boy, television was my babysitter, especially in the summer months. See, my family cannot afford the luxury of sending me to a summer camp, nor do we go on a lot of family field trips. So I would often stay at home and watch countless hours of television in order to entertain myself. In the 1980s, many of these shows that I watched were unknown to me, but they were often referred to as being called reruns because they were shows that were once popular but no longer had an appealing audience that viewed them often. You know, one of the shows that I loved watching as a little kid was a show that was called Charles in Charge. Does anybody know that show? A little bit, yes, a little bit of people, yes. It's a show based on a young college student named Charles who was hired to live as an in, a live-in housekeeper for John and Jill Pembroke, an affluent and highly edu- educated family who lived in New Brunswick, New Jersey. Shout out to Norm, wherever you are. And their three children. There he is over there, New Jersey. Charles was only a few years younger than the Pembroke children. However, 
He was always seen as being the wisest sage in the family. And ironically, he was not just doing the daily chores that he was tasked to do, but he was often asked to solve many of the problems, if not all of the problems for both young and old, adult and children within the Pembroke home. Hence the name of the show proved to be true. Charles was in charge. You see, our story today of the, of Luke, in Luke 10 stems from a similar reality. It stems from a reality of wisdom being reserved for the young and inexperienced and folly being excluded from the wise, the intelligent, and the prudent. I love what Jesus says in Luke 10, 21, right before this passage. passage. Listen to Jesus' words as he prays to the Father. He says, at that, at that time, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and the intelligent and revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, this was your good pleasure. You know, last week, Jesus inspired his disciples to make disciples of every nation by reminding them of God's sovereignty, by saying that all authority has been given to me in heaven and both on earth. Therefore, as you go, make disciples. Today, Jesus connects two seemingly contrary things, love for God and love for neighbor. And he rightly discerns that our love for God is most clearly seen, felt, and experienced by loving one's neighbor. Last week, I asked you this question. Are you living your life as if Jesus is your resurrected king? Today, I invite you to consider this question. Are you living your life as if your neighbor matters to God? Will you pray with me? Father, we do love you and thank you. We ask that you would be with us even in this time. As always, God, I ask that you hide behind your cross, and I pray that you would take my little and make much of it as only you can. We ask, Lord, that we would respond uh, to your word with great joy and humility. Encourage us, convict us, change us, God, according to your word. We love you and praise you. Allow everyone under the sound of my voice to walk away encouraged and even challenged to expand the boundaries that we naturally create that exclude some, exclude most, excuse me, and include some. In Jesus' name, amen. And who is my neighbor? If there was ever a question for our consideration in 2021, it is this one. It seems like we live in a world where faction and division has become the norm and not the exception. We see it from wearing masks or not wearing masks. We see it even overseas in the war in Afghanistan. And we even see it on social media with the milk crate challenge on TikTok. Don't look that up right now. Look it up later. This question, who is my neighbor, cuts through the gray areas of our life and speaks to our reality like none other. This question is one that must be considered by every single person sitting here under the sound of my voice. The question, and who is my neighbor, reverberates within the corridors 
of our society. So let me ask you, have you intentionally or unintentionally excluded someone as being your neighbor? Do you have a bias to include some people as your neighbors and maybe excluding others? Proverbs 16, 18 says this. It says, pride comes before destruction and a haughty looks comes before a fall. And today in our passage in Matthew 25, we witness the reality of this scripture in Jesus' interaction with an expert in the law as he asks this infamous question, and who is my neighbor? Look with me as we begin to look at this passage of scripture together. Look with me in verse 25. Verse 25 begins with these words. Then an expert in the law stood up to test him, saying, Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? You see, this question asked was a standard one in Judaism and therefore commonplace to ask. That this term expert in the law refers to a scribe or a Pharisee whose entire life training was in the Torah or God's holy book, the Pentateuch. You see, this expert of the law spent most of his life asking and answering questions about the law. Hence, the scribe wants to see whether or not Jesus can answer a simple question, and who is my neighbor? But notice with me, he's not just asking to gain information. He's asking with alternative Motive because it, the word of God says that he asked in order to test Jesus. You know, the Bible is clear about not testing God. Deuteronomy 6.16 says it this way, do not test the Lord your God. I don't think we can get any more clearer than that, right? Matthew 4.7 says it this way, Jesus replied, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. You know, this is a good reminder for us that Jesus is the Word made flesh, according to John 1.14. And the Word of God discerns our hearts and our motives with clarity and precision. It's a good reminder for us this morning to remind ourselves that we just don't read the Word of God. God's Word reads us. I love how Hebrews puts it in Hebrews 4, uh, chapter 4, verse 12. It says it this way, For the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. It penetrates, even dividing to soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. You see, despite the testing, we will notice what Jesus revealed about this scribe's heart. Notice this word in, in verse 25. Notice the word inherit. He asks a specific question. He says, teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? This Greek word for inherit means to receive an allotted share. Notice with me that this scribe's focus was this. What can I do to earn God's favor? I don't know about you, but growing up, I've learned more and more about what it means to have an inheritance. 
And one thing that I've learned is that, well, two things that I've learned is that inheritance can either be lost or it can be gained. (laughs) Inheritance can be lost by offending someone, making someone mad. They can withhold an inheritance from you. They can withhold something that they were planning to give you and maybe even give it to someone else. There's also an opposite reality to that notion as well. That one's inheritance also can be gained. And it can be gained by being an overachiever, doing more than, 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 than that's asked of you. You see, the Jews believed that eternal life was based on their bloodline and their good deeds. So this was a very important question for this expert in the law to ask. How will Jesus respond to this man's pride and arrogance? Well, we'll see it in verses 26 and 28. He responds in two ways. Jesus first affirms the man's answer, but then number two, he asks the scribe to answer his own question. Look with me in verses 26 and 28. Jesus asks him, he says, what is written in the law? He asks him, how do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. Jesus says, you've answered correctly, he told him. Do this and you will live. Jesus does an interesting thing here. He doesn't tear this man down. He had every right to do it because of his prideful nature, but he doesn't do that. Jesus compliments the man on correctly citing from Deuteronomy 6, 5 and Leviticus 19, 18. In Deuteronomy 6, it's called the great Shema. And every single day, a Jewish person who's faithful to the Lord will recite this passage of scripture at least twice a day. And notice what Jesus doesn't say. Jesus doesn't say that it's possible to earn one's salvation by loving God and nature. He just told him that you have the right means, but you might have the wrong method. Church family, it's a good reminder for us that our witness depends less on coming up with clever answers for our neighbors or for those who are skeptical about Jesus. Our witness depends less on clever answers. For if we truly love God and our neighbor as ourselves, then our neighbors will be drawn to that type of love that we show that comes from a love of God and extends all the way to a love of neighbor. Notice with me, after affirming, after affirming this man, Jesus now asks the scribe to answer his own question. Jesus asks it this way. He says, what is written in the law? <laughs> Jesus says, how do you read it? I love this because Jesus points the scribe to the word of God. And by doing so, Jesus affirms the faithfulness of God's word to lead us into his truth. Psalm 19 puts it this way about God's word and truth. It says, the instruction of the Lord is perfect, reviving one's life. The instruction of the Lord, the testimony of the Lord is trustworthy, making the inexperienced wise. The precepts of the Lord are right, making the heart glad, and the command of the Lord is radiant, making the eyes light up. In addition, your servant is warned by them, and in keeping them, there is an abundant reward. That was Psalm 19, verses 7 and 8, and then skipping down to verse 11. Did you, do you recall how the scribe responded to Jesus' call to the word of God? 
He, 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 he responds by saying, listen, this is what you got to do. You got to love the Lord with all your heart, your mind, your soul, and all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. You see, this scribe is a lot like us. <laughs> this lawyer understood the concept, yet he, he often failed to understand its application. I love what Tony Evans tweeted not too long ago. July 31st, Tony Evans tweeted this tweet out. He says this. He says, I hear people saying, I don't have to go to church to be a Christian. And they're absolutely right. Salvation is through faith alone in Christ Jesus. But you don't have to go home to be married, but stay away long enough and your relationship will be affected. I like that because it helps us to understand that there are things in our life that we can understand the concept of what it is, but then also have a misunderstanding of how that concept should be applied into one's life. It's like a person who's really excited about marriage and wanting and desiring and having a desire from a young age to want to be married, to want to have a spouse, to want to exchange vows to to another human being. Being so excited about that moment and that day, but then being ignorant on how to apply that love to your spouse on a day-to-day basis. This is what Jesus is getting at with this man. He's saying, you're understanding all of the concept. You're understanding all of what this entails, but you don't know how it applies. So what does it mean to love God? To love God means to love him with our entire being. It means to focus our whole being on him. Heart, soul, strength, and mind. Every aspect of our life should be focused on him because man's chief duty is to love God. And according to the Westminster Minister Shorter Catechism, man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. I love this because it is a deep challenge for each and every one of us not to compartmentalize our relationship with God. There's a great temptation for each and every one of us to only love God in the ways that we feel comfortable loving him. This is a call to total submission before God, not, a comp- not, comp- uh, not, not having um, different areas in which we only allow God to get in. To love God with all of our heart means to love him with deep conviction. To love God with all of our soul means that we love him with our vitality and our whole consciousness. To love God with our mind means to love him with our reason and our intellect. To love God with our strength means to love him with all of your powers and all of your abilities. Love God, heart, mind, soul, and strength. Love God with your entire being. Love God with your whole being focused on him. Now, I know this seems challenging when I say that, But let me give you some encouragement. God isn't asking you to fix yourself before you decide or try to love him. As you love God 
And as you walk with God, you, God will thereby change you, strengthen you, sustain you so that you can love him even more. Let's go back to our analogy that we said earlier about a man or a woman who's excited about marriage. But then they get into that marriage and they realize, man, I was more excited about marriage than actually being married to this person. Well, what should that person do? Well, that person shouldn't get out of their marriage just because it's not fulfilling or just because it's not satisfying them in the ways they desired or they thought it would. What they need to do is to enter into the relationship that they have entered into in order to learn how to love that person and submit and and become one with that person so that greater love will ensue. You don't run away from the commitment. You run into the commitment. This is what it means to love God. This is what it means to, to pursue him. The opposite of this is actually seen in James chapter 1, verse 8. The opposite of not loving God as our entire being is what James describes in, in James chapter 1, verse 8 as being a double-minded man or woman. James 1, 8 says this, that person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord, being double-minded and unstable in all of his or her ways. You see, a double-minded person is unstable in all their ways. They can't find equal footing. They can't find a a, a place of a firm foundation because literally that word double-minded means that you're torn between two sources or two allegiance. You serve God one day, you serve self the next day. God is your provider and he's your all-sufficient all king one day, next day. My bank, my checkbook, my savings account is my God. What God is calling us to is total submission before him, not, a comp- um, car- not compartmentalizing our relationship with him. So how are we to love God? What does that look like? We're to love him with our whole being. Heart, mind, soul, and strength. How are we to love God? We're to love God by loving others, by loving one another. And this is a good question for us to consider. Are you living your life as if your neighbor matters to God? First John 2 puts it this way. It says, the one who says he's in the light but hates his brother or sister is in the darkness until now. The one who loves his brother or sister remains in the light, and there's no cause for stumbling in him. But the one who hates his brother or sister is in the darkness, walks in the darkness, and doesn't know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. You see, while Jesus commends the scribe for answering the question, he also suggests that the man is not doing what he knows to do. Verse 28 says it this way. He says, Jesus says, you've answered correctly, and he told them, Do this and you will live. Once again, the the lawyer understood the concept, but he didn't understand its application. Therefore, Jesus had to tell him, hey, you've answered correctly. You know what to do, but go and do what you know to do. Jesus convicts this man of his selfish pride and self-centered arrogance, and he convicts him for failing to bring his life into congruence with his understanding. In response, the lawyer seeks to justify himself as a result of Jesus' conviction. And we see that in verse 29. He says, but wanting to justify himself, he asks Jesus, 
And who is my neighbor? I love this question because this was a practical question posed by a skillful debater. Notice with me, by continuing to debate the law, this expert of the law can, de- can, de- can purposely delay compliance with the law. By continuing to debate the law, <laughs> but by continuing to de- debate the circumstance, to continue to bring a question into question, this lawyer is doing a great job of delaying compliance with the law. It's like a spoiled child constantly asking the question, why? If you don't know how it goes, let me give you a quick example. Go clean your room. Why? Because I said so. Why? It's dirty. Why? You don't clean it. Why? You're lazy. Why? Because you're just like your father, right? No, it doesn't go like that, but why, right? Then we finally, we just say, I don't know, ask God, right? Ask God. God got to get that question for you. It's, it's like a spoiled child constantly asking that why question. Why is this man asking this question? He, he, this man, this, this expert in the law, what he's doing here, it is very, very important to hear. This, this expert of the law, he's challenging Jesus to set the parameters of his love and acceptance of others. He's challenging Jesus to set the parameters of his love and acceptance of others. In other words, he's saying, Jesus, how far do I have to go? Where can I draw the line, Jesus? Because if he knows who his neighbors are, then he'll also be able to identify who his neighbors are not. So what does it mean to live your life? As if your neighbor matters to God, neighbors matter to God. There's an old African philosophy that many of you may have heard about, but I've only heard about within the last year or so, year, maybe two years. It's this term called Umbutsu. According to the African Bible commentary, Paul John Isaac writes this about Mbutu. He says, Mbutu is an African philosophy that places emphasis on being being self through others. It is someone who is welcoming, hospitable, warm, and generous with with a servant spirit that affirms, affirms others and says, I am because you are, or you are because I am. Such a person recognizes that we are all one another's brothers and sisters, and that God has created us to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, strength, and mind, and to love your neighbor as yourself. So what does this Mbutu look like? How does one and choose achieve this Mbutu type relationship? Well, look with me in verses 30 through 37, because this is, Jesus gives us a story that shows it. Jesus says this, he says, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him, they beat him, and fled, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. In the same way, a Levite, when he arrived at the place, saw him and passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan on his journey came up to him, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and banished his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. 
Then he put him on, him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, and said, take care of him. And when I come back, I'll reimburse you whatever extra you spend. Which of these three men do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The one who showed mercy to, to him, he asked. Or excuse me, he said. Then Jesus told him, go and do the same. You know, I love this story because Jesus, after realizing and showing this man's selfish heart, Jesus could have simply looked at him and said, hey, everyone is your neighbor. Everyone is your neighbor. There, there's no parameters in which you should exclude someone from being your neighbor. But notice he doesn't do that. Notice what Jesus does here. Jesus tells a story. He tells a story that shifts and encourages people to shift our focus from the boundaries that we create and to the person on the other side of that boundary. You see, this Pharisee, also notice with me that this Pharisee couldn't even muster up the strength to mention the Samaritan by name. Instead, in verse 37, he simply refers to him as the one who showed mercy to him. He couldn't even, have, he couldn't even say the Samaritan. Why is that? Well, because there was a deep hatred between Jews and Samaritans. Jews felt Samaritans were half-breeds, which they were. They were not fully Jewish, Jewish in the Jewish bloodline. They had integrated and, and, and intermarried with other foreigners, if you will. But not only that, they also believed that they were worshiping the false, a false god, not the true god. And there was a deep-seated hatred between the Jews and the Samaritans. It's interesting how Jesus uses this story. This story is none like any other thing that Jesus has done, and it's only told here in the Gospel of Luke. Because in Jesus' day, the conventions of the day was to tell a story, and the third character in the story would always be the one to break the pattern of the first two. So here when Jesus says, a priest went by and a Levite went by, what this man would have expected from Jesus is to say a God-honoring Jewish man went by and he helped this man on the road, but Jesus shatters this man's expectations and he has the audacity to say that a Samaritan, your sworn enemy, is the one who shows compassion. Notice with me how this Samaritan showed compassion and how he responded. Verse 33 says it this way. Says that he saw him. But a Samaritan on his journey came up to him, and when he saw the man, he had compassion. Listen to me. There, there is a lot of good things that we can learn from this Samaritan's example. The first thing is this, is that we can't help what we don't see. Many of you have asked me, why are we doing church on the lawn? We are doing church on the lawn in order that we might see and be able to take down the barriers that, that, that have been created historically and the, even the, the barriers that have been created over, over time between us and this community. And the reality is, church, is that we can't help what we don't see. And by being on this lawn, by being a living evidence of God's grace in this community, you are doing more than you think right now. 
You are providing hope of the reality of Christ, our risen Savior, to a community that needs it. You are singing praises in the midst of despair, confusion, hurt, pain, and sorrow. You are proclaiming the authority of Jesus even right now. I love what Howard Thurman says in his book, Jesus and the Disinherited. He says, I can, only, I can sympathize only when I see myself in another's place. The Samaritan stopped because he saw this man. He saw him. He saw him in his predicament and he had compassion on him. He responded with compassion. We have, as God's people and as God's church, we need to be led by compassion and conviction. We can't just have charity. As I've said it before, I'll say it again. Compassion must always precede charity. Charity is a good thing to do. It's a good thing to have. But if you don't have compassion with your charity, your charity will only go so far. What my, my prayer and my hope is that as we are on this lawn and as we preach the word and as we sing the gospel and we rehearse the gospel through our liturgy, that not only will we proclaim something, we will also see something. We will see and we will, we will have a, grow a heart for this neighborhood and for this community, for the lost and the broken, not just to save them, but to be their neighbors to be their friends, to see them as equals and not as other. That's why we are on the lawn. Notice, notice with me, not only did he see him, not only did he respond with compassion, but notice 30, verse 34, he used what he had. He used what he had. I love verse 34, it says here, he went over to him, bandaged his wounds, poured on oil, uh, olive oil and wine, and then he put him on his own animal and brought him to the inn and took care of him. This aspect of oil and wine is very key because the priest and the Levite handled oil and wine at the temple every day. Oil and wine was a, a sense of not just uh, for health reasons, but also a sense of worship unto God. And the priest, where the priest and Levi failed, where the priest and the Levite failed to relieve suffering along the road by using what God had given them, this Samaritan did not withhold the wine and the oil. He took what God had given him and he used it for the betterment and he used it for the healing of the broken. I hope someone gets that. I hope you hear what I'm saying here. The priest and the Levite had oil on them. They used it every day. They were commissioned by God to do what the Samaritan what, what was not supposed to do. They were commissioned to be the mediator between God and man. Commissioned to use oil to anoint heads and wine to celebrate sacrifices and to celebrate the goodness of God. But the very things that God had given them when they had an opportunity to share them in an unfamiliar context, they withheld it. He chose not to relieve the suffering with the things that God had given them, but the Samaritan decided to use 
the very things that they withheld to bless the very people that they were willing to avoid. Not only did he see him, not only did he have compassion, not only did he use what he had, but in verse 35, he was generous. This man gave more than what was expected of him. I love this because in this story, notice with me, we know very little about the victim. We don't know if this man is Samaritan. We don't know if he's Jewish or some other, some type of foreigner or alien from that, from the, from not from that country or from that vicinity. We don't know anything about the victim, but we also know very little about the Samaritan. This reminds us and helps us to see that Jesus is not putting parameters on who we help. He purposely and intentionally allowed this victim to be nameless, and he gave very minute description of the Samaritan's wealth or ability to help. We don't know if the Samaritan gave the very last resources that he had for himself and his family, or maybe he was very wealthy and he had an abundance. We don't know. Notice with me also that the Samaritan's actions reverse those of the robbers. The robbers came to take and to kill and to steal and to leave this victim to die. And the Samaritan made the intentional decision for him to live through his sacrifice and through his sacrificial giving. I'm often asked, man, who, <laughs> who is the Samaritan in this story? Who is this good Samaritan? And now listen, I know I may step on some toes, but that's okay. But the Good Samaritan is not us, y'all. The Good Samaritan is not us. We're not the Good Samaritan in this story. There is only one person in human history who qualifies as being the Good Samaritan, and it's not any of us. The Good Samaritan is none other than Jesus. Jesus was the one according to Isaiah 53, who was despised and rejected by man. He was a man of suffering who knew what sickness was. He was like someone people turned away from. He was despised and we didn't value him. Yet he himself bore our sickness and he carried our pains, but we turned, we regarded him as being stricken and struck down by God and afflicted. He was pierced because of our rebellion. He was crushed because of our iniquities. And the chastisement of our peace was upon him. And by his stripes, we are healed. See, guys, church, don't get it twisted. As much as good that we do, as much compassion that we have, we're not the hero of the story. Jesus is the hero of this story. So you may be asking, oh my gosh, Pastor James, if if we're not the Good Samaritan, then then where are we? Where are we within this story? (laughs) Unfortunately, right now, many of us, including myself, we're like the priest and the Levite. We simply walk by on the other side. But notice with me how God is calling us to serve, not as a priest and the Levite, but God is calling us to serve more like the innkeeper. God is calling through his son, Jesus, to call us to expand our strict boundaries, to to expand our strict boundaries, to accept and include every person that Jesus brings to us, 
to care for them until he returns. And not only we are to care for them until he returns, we are to care for him knowing that he'll reward us when he returns. Church family, why are we out on the church on the lawn? Why are we under the canopy of these two big oak trees? Why are we not in the comfort of AC right now? We're, we are outside right now because we want to be less like the priest and the Levite, and we want to be more like the innkeeper. We want to be, be ready to receive those whom Jesus brings into our care and brings into our fold and love them well in honor, not just for charity, but with compassion and to honor our King Jesus. Jesus has come to expand our boundaries. He's come to expand our boundaries of whom we choose to accept as our neighbor. And as I close, I just want to leave you with three points of application and then I'll close. The first point of application is this. Lack of love is easily justified, although it's never right. Lack of love is easily justified, even though it's never right. You know, listen, I'm not here to demean the, 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 the scribe and the Pharisee. Listen, I get it because I use the same excuse every single day driving up and down Taylor Boulevard. Listen, they may not have had, they may not have the, had the time to help. Maybe they were just too busy. Maybe uh, as a priest, they thought that the man was dead, so they didn't want to touch him in order to be deemed as being unclean and have to go through that ceremonial process. Maybe they have fear that if they helped him, that the robbers were still there. And if they stop to help this man, then they will be ambushed themselves and end up like him. Maybe, maybe the, 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 this, this incident just happened on the, at the wrong time. Maybe it didn't happen because they weren't on their salary hours. Notice that the Bible says that they were going down. Jericho was a, excuse me, Jerusalem was a high place. And the trek from Jerusalem to Jericho was about a 17-mile trek that went 3,000 miles down in dissension. It was a perfect place for thieves and robbers to hide in the crevices of the winding roads that led down from Jerusalem to Jericho. But notice that the, the Bible says that the priests and the Levi were coming from Jerusalem. It helps us to know that maybe they had just were coming off work. <laughs> they were leaving work and going home and they didn't have time. They didn't have the ability to help. Maybe they didn't have the right resources on them. I get it. Maybe they, the, the, maybe they just looked at this man and said, hey, no one else is willing to help, so why should I? <laughs> Regardless of the reason why they didn't help, Lack of love is easily justified, although it's never right. The second question is this. Uh, the second point is this. The question is not who is my neighbor, and I love Jesus for this. Jesus flips the question. He takes the question from not being who is my neighbor, but now Jesus rephrased the question to ask who isn't my neighbor. Jesus expands this reality to include everyone who's made in the image and likeness of God, their creator. 
And lastly, love means acting to meet a person's need, not just their wants. You know, church family, one of my prayers as we are outside is this. Rather than worrying about all we should, uh, we should not do or cannot do, I pray that we will start to, God will give us gospel cre- creativity and gospel eyes to see the areas in which we can step in, to concentrate on the areas where what we can do to show love for God and love for our neighbors. Who is your neighbor? <laughs> your neighbor is anyone who lives in close proximity to you with a need that you can meet. That is who your neighbor is. This week we'll have three, uh, a unique opportunity. Actually, tomorrow we'll have a unique opportunity to actually start realizing what that means to be neighborly. Tomorrow, um, we're going to start what we call Mission Monday. And Mission Monday is simply an initiative that we're starting to be able to be the hands and feet of Jesus in this local community. So tomorrow at 6 p.m., we're going to gather, we're going to pray, we're going to, families, I know it's hard for you to come and to serve, but I encourage you to come tomorrow if you can, because we will have pizza for you and food for you and your children and your family, so that hopefully that'll be a blessing to you so that you don't have to cook, and also so that your kids can get their bellies warm before you guys do service together. You know, service isn't just reserved for singles and college age people without children. Service is called for all of us to be involved in, and we hope and pray that you will be involved with us tomorrow to be the hands and feet of Jesus as we do a cleanup day in this neighborhood. You can be the difference that you want to see in this neighborhood. God has called you to be the difference that you want to see in this neighborhood. I'm not talking about living here. I'm not saying getting you, all of us move into the neighborhood and all that great stuff. Not asking that. I am asking, though, that we will move towards compassion. I am asking that we will grow closer in proximity so that we can have fellowship and connection with our neighbors to be an embodiment of the gospel to them. That's what I'm asking. So if you have not joined, if you have not signed up, I encourage you, families, singles, college age, jolly elders, sign up. We have a role we can play together in this, but it can only happen as we do it together. Will you pray with me? Father, we do love you and thank you. We thank you that you are a good father and a good king. We thank you, God, that our lives matter, but even more so than that, God, um, Lord, as we live our lives, we live them as if our neighbor's lives matter to you. Convict us, God, in ways in which we've created unnecessary boundaries where we've created barriers, where we've created opportunities for us not to live in fellowship with one another. Excuses, God. Help us, Lord, to transition from being the priest and the Levite to being the innkeeper. Help us to be join our heart with your mission and your love for this community. Help us to lead from a place of compassion and not just charity. Help us to be moved with great care and concern for the broken, this disinherited in this community. And God, I'm not just talking about people in this neighborhood. I'm talking about us. God, we are broken. (laughs) And we need you to come inside of our hearts and to revive us once again.
So Holy Spirit, we do pray that in that way. God, I pray for anyone on the sound of my voice who doesn't know you, who is skeptical of Jesus or not knowing who he is. I pray that you would breathe them into a, a saving relationship with you as being their Lord and their Savior. Where they realize, God, that this is not by merit, but it's by grace that we are saved. So I pray, God, that you would move mightily as only you can in that way. Save and sanctify for your name and your glory and expansion of your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm James A.P. Fields, Jr., lead pastor at Sojourn Church Carlisle. Thanks for listening. We're a church that is rooted in the community of South Louisville, and we are seeking to advance the gospel of Christ in South Louisville and beyond. For more sermons, info about our church, and ways you can support our ministry, visit SojournChurch.com backslash Carlisle, C-A-R-L-I-S-L-E. God bless.